quickly to go over the objectives for this lecture is to review the acid-base balance. And I want to really pay focus on identification and management for both respiratory and metabolic acidosis or alkalosis. I'm also going to discuss some medications and how your diet can impact your acid-base balance. So when we look at the acid-base uh, balance, we were taught back in nursing school how to look at a blood gas, and really that sample was an arterial sample. So your normal pH is 7.35 to 7.45 with a bicarb of 24. Your PCO2s are around 35 to 45 with a PO2 of uh, generally greater than 70, 75 um, or so. However, the venous gas is going to be slightly different. Um, because there is more CO2 in the sample, because it's a byproduct of um, cellular respiration, you're going to have more CO2 returning back to the heart and the bloodstream. So generally that will drop your pH a few points, roughly around 730 or so. Um, normal, when you compare your venous gas to your arterial sample, it's going to be about 0 .5, 0 0.05 to 0 0.08 points lower, meaning that it'll be a little bit more acidotic. Your bicarb generally is about the same. Your PCO2 is going to be about 8 to 10 points higher, again, because you're going to have more CO2 returning back to the heart. The PO2, however, doesn't really give us a good representation of oxygenation, mainly because different, order, uh, different uh, body processes that may be going on in the, in, in the patient um, ha may have some variability to them. And you could really like, consume a lot of your oxygen. For example, a patient with sepsis may have a high oxygen demand and may be consuming more oxygen and, um, at the cellular level, which may not give us a really good accurate representation of how we're delivering oxygen to the tissues. Now, this formula that you've looked at at the bottom of the screen for the last few minutes or so is, is the formula in which the body tries to balance out its acid-base balance to maintain homeostasis. So, for example, if you have a higher CO2 or higher CO2 than normal, your body will combine the CO2 with water, creating carbonic acid. And then the byproducts are going to be a hydrogen ion as well as bicarb. And vice versa, if you have a higher bicarb, it'll combine to a hydrogen ion, again, converting to a carbonic acid and then making water and CO2. So when we look at someone who is, is um, a CO2 retainer, right, and say we intubate them and they're on a ventilator, this is where diet may become a very important part of looking at your acid-base balance. So if you have a high CO2, well, carbohydrates convert into CO2 and water. So you can have a higher load of CO2 with someone who's already retaining CO2. And if you're having some challenges of removing that CO2, say as in a patient with ARDS, you may want to make an adjustment on, on their diet. Now, in the past lectures, we talked about um, evaluating their caloric needs. And especially on a patient like this, we can definitely do a metabolic cart. And this will let us know what their resting um, energy requirements are. And we can adjust the amount of carbohydrates they're taking in to help prevent stockpiling more CO2 in the bloodstream. So here we can look at the acid-base disorders. This is a nice little graph or um, table that kind of goes through the, the four different types of metabolic acid, uh, different types of acidosis and alkalosis. And it shows you what the response is to the body. So if you have someone who's in a metabolic acidosis, well, they have a very low bicarb and a higher CO2, 
So the body's going to try to hyperventilate to blow off some of that CO2 to counterbalance it um, because we know that the respiratory compensations tend to be a little bit more faster than, say, metabolic processes. It takes, and it takes a little while for the body to, to develop or create more bicarb, but it's pretty easy to blow off some CO2. With metabolic alkalosis, you have a high bicarb, and then what happens is the body's going to try to hypoventilate or retain more CO2 to help balance out. With your respiratory acidosis with a high PCO2, the body's going to try to excrete more acid. But again, this takes a little bit of time. So this is not going to be something that's going to be a quick fix. And with respiratory alkalosis, same thing. The body's going to, um, you have a low PCO2. The body's going to try to um, drop that bicarb to, to, to prevent more of the base developing in the bloodstream. So when we look at our primary disturbances, we want to look and see if it's an acidemia or an alkalemia, right? So if it's less than 735, generally it's an acidosis. If it's higher than 745, it's generally an alkalosis. And then we have to determine if it's a metabolic or respiratory um, primary issue. So we, this is where we look at the CO2 or the bicarb. So if, you, if it's a CO2 fluctuation too high or too low, then it's a respiratory component. And, you know, coincident, you know and the same thing with the metabolic process. If your bicarb is too high or too low, then it's probably a metabolic issue. And when we look at acute versus chronic um, issues, we have to look at the, compens the compensatory mechanism of the body. So, for example, if I have a patient that has a really high PCO2, um, the body's going to start compensating with more bicarb over time. So if my patient has a PCO2 of, say, in the 80s, their bicarb is going to be somewhere around in the 40s to maintain a normal pH. I once took care of a toddler who had bronchiolitis obliterans, and his PCO2s were in the 90s. But he had a bicarb that was generally in the 50s that helped balance that out. Now, again, that's not normal, but his pH was relatively normal, and he was able to play, interact with staff, and do things. Um, so it's not uncommon sometimes to see that kind of compensation. The key thing is to remember is why they're compensating and which, which is the real issue. You see a bicarb of 56, you have to determine if that with the normal pH, was this, was this a metabolic process that... Is compensating with the CO2? Probably not, um, but it could be, and that's something that you have to look at and determine which is the real issue. Now, here's someone who's on a trach in a, an event who has a known respiratory um, CO2 retaining issue. We know that the bicarb is a compensatory um, component. So I have a list of different mnemonics. I recommend that you memorize all of these, know them very well. Not only are they going to be seen on exams, but they're definitely going to be useful in practice. Um, and we're going to look at um, a few of them here in just a second. But at first, I want to talk about how to identify a primary metabolic issue. So you've heard people calculating um, the anion gap in the past, I'm sure. Um, and what we do is we look to see if we have a normal gap or an elevated gap. So here is the formula on how to calculate your gap. Um, you're going to take your sodium, subtract it from your chloride plus the bicarb. So essentially what you're doing is you're subtracting your negative ions, which is your sodium, from your positive ions, which is your chloride and your bicarb. A normal anion gap is, is 12 or plus or minus 2, somewhere in that range. Um, and generally if you have a bicarb, an anion gap that's greater than 20, um, it is more, most for certain a metabolic issue, regardless if you have a normal pH or normal bicarb. And this really helps you narrow down your anion gap. We're going to talk about that next. 
So when we look at anti, uh, metabolic acidosis with an anion gap, we have this beautiful mnemonic called mud pilers. And these are patients that have methanol ingestions, uremia. They can have DKA or an alcoholic ketoacidosis, peraldehyde ingestion, isonide overdose, lactic acidosis, ethanol, renal failure, rhabdomyolysis, or aspirin overdoses. The patients that have a non-gap acidosis, the mnemonic is HARDUPS. So these are patients that have an uh, improper hyperal alimentation ordered. Um, they have chronic use of um, diamox or aldactone. Um, these patients could have just plain old diarrhea and have a normal gap acidosis. You see this commonly too with patients with renal tubular acidosis, um, as well as the other disorders of urido, pelvic shunts, or post-hypocapnia. When we look at respiratory acidosis, this is pretty simple. It's anything that causes hypoventilation. So if you have a neuro disorder or CNS depression, airway obstruction, pulmonary edema, uh, pneumonia, hemothorax, pneumothorax, or muscular uh, neuromuscular disorder. Now with metabolic alkalosis, there's a mnemonic called Clever PD. Um, and here we look at contraction alkalosis. Now those of you who work in a cardiac ICU or in a cardiac environment, you know that the contraction alkalosis is most predominantly caused by loop diuretics, uh, your Lasix or your Bumex. Um, and what happens is in the distal tubules, you have a reabsorption of bicarb um, and that bicarb stays in the system and you get these elevated bicarbs sometimes in the 30s or 40s. And it's often treated with um, medication called Diamox. So sometimes we'll go ahead and give that to help um, bring that down. Or over time, when you reduce or take, take away the aggressive uh, treatment with Lasix, it tends to resolve on its own. Anyone with a licorice overdose, some endocrine disorders can cause a metabolic alkalosis, such as Cushing's or Barter's. Uh, vomiting um, is a common cause, especially if it's excessive vomiting, can cause a metabolic alkalosis. Um, alkali ingestion, refeeding syndrome, post-hypercapnia are other conditions that can cause uh, metabolic alkalosis. Our respiratory alkalosis has the mnemonic CHAMPS, so that's CNS disease, hypocapnia, anxiety. Mechanical ventilation is um, pretty interesting because this can sometimes be iatrogenic. So if we're improperly ventilating someone, say we're blowing off too much CO2 with the ventilator rate that we have, um, then we can just make an adjustment there and treat that pretty quickly. So often when we're maintaining gases or looking at gases when patients are intubated, we're looking to see where we are with the respiratory shift or how we can treat them or best support them um, with um, the ventilator. Progesterone, progesterone um, issues or aspirin overdoses and sepsis can be other issues that can cause alkalosis in respiratory standpoint. So let's look at a case study. We have a five-year-old admitted with uh, acute respiratory distress syndrome. He has the following blood gas, 734 for the pH, PO2 of 85. He has a PCO2 of 82, a bicarb of 48, and he's setting 92%. So we look at this gas, and you're thinking, it's kind of weird, right? What do you want to do? Do you want to innovate? I don't know. I really want to look at this kid and see what's going on. So if this kid has a chronic CO2 retention, which is what this looks like, because you have a PCO2 in the 80s and you have a relatively almost normal pH and the bicarb is probably the compensatory component of that, I'm guessing that this kid's probably not in too much distress. And I would really look at him, assess him, and see if he needs some kind of support. Um, often these patients really just kind of, there's not a whole lot you can do sometimes, and I would just kind of keep an eye on it. Now, some of you may ask, well, should we give some Diamox? 
Probably not, because if this is a true primary respiratory problem with that PCO2 in the 80s, if I took away his buffer, I would just make him more acidotic. So sometimes Diamox can be very helpful in treating like conditions like, say, contraction alkalosis, but I definitely wouldn't want to um, take away someone's buffer. Now, if you have someone with a contraction alkalosis and their, their bicarb is becoming relatively high, sometimes they'll start hypoventilating to compensate or yeah, to retain more CO2. So if you're if you're if you see that, sometimes then diamox is important. But in a condition like this, more than likely, this chronic CO2 of 82 is probably a true underlying issue, and I don't want to take away the buffer. Case study number two. So now we have an eight-year-old that's admitted to the emergency room with lethargy, severe dehydration. He has an acetone odor on his breath, and here are your labs. Your pH is 6.8, your PO2 is 110, your PCO2 is 8 your bicarb is four. Now, right away, I know something's wrong. That pH is definitely too low for me to be comfortable. Sodium is 154, your potassium is eight, your chloride is 118, your BUN is 56, and your creatinine is 0.9. So what's your diagnosis? I probably already gave it away with the acetone odor on his breath, but if you didn't have that component to this, you probably would go back and look at your mud piler's mnemonic. Um, and this, this child would have DKA. This is a very common gas that you would see in a patient with diabetic ketoacidosis. And then to further confirm this, even if I had my suspicions, I could go ahead and um, calculate my anion gap. And here I've gone ahead and done the math for you. So I would take the sodium. I would actually, first thing I do is add the chloride plus the bicarb. And then I subtract that from my sodium of 154, and I get a, an anion gap of 32. So this definitely is an elevated gap acidosis confirming that DKA. Um, and with these patients, you're going to look at these gases pretty frequently, see where your treatment is at, and you're going to monitor the PCO2 and the bicarb and the pH to determine if you're converting them out of the acidosis to help them get ready for discharge. All right, that that concludes this week's lecture. I kept it pretty short, or this last lecture for this week. I kept it pretty short. Um, have a great week, and if you have any questions, please let me know.